Good morning. So good to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for moving up and moving in so that we can make room for all of our visitors. You know, it's an exciting time in the life of the Oldham Lane congregation. For the last many years, we have been on a steady incline. We've had a, uh, a wonderful span of growth during that time, and people continue to come our way and, and want to learn more about us and be a part of what we're doing here. And so we're so thankful that you're with us. If we can answer any questions or be of assistance to you, let us know after we're done this morning. Get us, give us a chance to meet you and kind of get to know you a little bit better. Uh, also, if you're visiting with us, we have been going through a devotional book uh, starting this year and going throughout the year where we take certain passages of Scripture and during the week you study those passages and you study those Scriptures and then it all culminates on Sunday morning with me picking a, a section of that Scripture and preaching on it. And so what you should have been studying this week, if, if I'm correct, is Matthew 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, that area. And if you look at those chapters, you see this common theme that you see throughout the Gospels. You see that Jesus is making preparation. He's talking to the apostles about what is going to take place. So in Matthew chapter 16, there's some talk about what it means to truly be a disciple. If you don't take up your cross and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. And Jesus talks to them about his impending death and burial and resurrection, what's about to go down. And then in Matthew chapter 17, we see the transfiguration, which was really a punctuation of Peter's confession. And then also it was foreshadowing of the splendor and glory in which he would return to this earth after the burial, after the resurrection or excuse me, after the crucifixion. And then in chapter 18, you see some instruction on forgiveness. You see some, uh, on from there, some instruction on marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. And then we come to chapter 20. And in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17, here's what we read. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will hand them over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Again, Jesus follows this theme that we see over and over, that he is preparing the apostles for what is to come. It's about to go down, and it's got to go down this way because God had ordained it to happen this way. The only way there could be victory over sin and death was for Jesus, the suffering servant, to go to the cross, to die a cruel death, to be buried, and to rise again. Then, right after this episode, here's what Matthew records for us. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. 
But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. It makes you wonder, did the mother of James and John walk up as he is as Jesus is having this very serious conversation about what is about to happen, does she walk up like some crazed soccer mom and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Can you put my sons on your left and on your right in the kingdom? I don't know how it went down. I don't even know if these two episodes are really that closely connected. I mean, Matthew includes them one right after the other, but maybe there was some time in between. But as we read it, it seems rather odd, doesn't it? That you have Jesus talking about serious matters of crucifixion and death and resurrection. And then here comes this helicopter parent who says, Hey, can you give my sons a position of honor on your right and on your left? It kind of reminds me of when I was a sophomore in high school. I was playing football, just trying to earn a spot. just Just trying to be a good teammate and trying to impress the coaches. And practice was over and we're all gathered around the huddle and coaches giving us a very stern and very serious talking to. And from the background I hear, Chris, I'm here to pick you up. It was my mother in the parking lot, and everybody heard her, including coach, and that's the day I dropped out of high school. Um, (laughs) I don't know how this particular episode really played out, what the particulars are, but it does seem strange, right, that this mother would come and make this request at this time. James and John were there, which is weird too, isn't it? Who's the greatest? It's a question that we we ask constantly in our culture. It's a question we try to answer constantly in our culture, right? I mean, if it's a doctor, we want to know which one's the best before they operate on us. People tell us, oh, you got to go see my doctor. He's the best. When it comes to buying stuff online, we, we buy stuff from Amazon. If you're like me, I base my, my purchase a lot on the reviews, whether it's five-star, one-star, anything in between. We go to a restaurant because we hear it's great and it gets good reviews and we walk in and maybe they have placards on the wall that say, you know, reader's choice, best burger, best brisket, whatever, right? A lot of our discerning about who or what is the greatest is based on review. It's based on what other people think. You know, in high school, it's the valedictorian. At our work, it's employee of the month. You know, in sports, sports radio is constantly trying to determine who's the best in each field. You know, if it's LeBron or Michael, is it Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady? Is it Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus? And they have these discussions over and over again. And then you have the Cy Young, you have the Heisman Trophy, you have, you know, the Hall of Fame. Whatever it is, we're constantly seeking to determine and define who is the greatest. Mark records a very similar episode. And he says that James and John themselves were the ones that made the request of Jesus. So why the discrepancy? Some people think that Matthew, because it was written some years later, and because James and John had already received, you know, famous status in the kingdom, that they didn't want to put a uh, a negative connotation attached to their name, and so they... So Matthew made it about the mother and not about James and John. Maybe, maybe both of them made the request. I, I, I don't know. 
But here's what I do know. The request was completely selfish. It came from a point of pride. And it indicates that they had no clue what the kingdom was about. But Jesus doesn't scold them, does he? Because at least the mother came and knelt down before Jesus. At least she and the two boys knew that Jesus could answer their request. They had faith that he could do it. we got to give some credit where credit is due. They were loyal. And so when you look at this episode, there's a lot of different details that strike you as, as rather odd. But one thing we do know, and one thing that we can decipher from the mother's request is we all want what's best for our children, don't we? I mean, we all want what's best for our children. We all want to see them do well. When I was, when I was in college and I was studying to, to be a coach, I decided a good way to get experience would be to coach third and fourth grade boys football. And so I coached the Cowboys in Paragould, Arkansas, third and fourth grade boys. And folks, we were really good. We were really good. And so we, we get to the end of the season, and we, had only, we, we hadn't lost a game, but we were playing the team that we had beat, and that's the only loss that they had. So if they beat us, then we're tied for first. And, you know, tying's like kissing your sister. You don't want to tie. And so you want to beat them. And so here we are, moments before the big game, and a parent comes up to me and says, you know, uh, Justin's grandparents are here today, and it sure would be nice if he got to run the ball and score a touchdown. Now, the problem with that is Justin was just as happy sitting on the sideline playing with his mouthpiece than he was playing football. And I don't really even know why he played football, maybe because they encouraged him to and pushed him to because he didn't want to be out there. I can understand you wanting what's best for your children. I didn't oblige that request, by the way. The last thing he was going to do is run the football. He was going to play. Everybody played half the game, but he wasn't going to run the football or score a touchdown. But it makes the point that we all want what's best for our children, don't we? We love seeing them in the limelight. We love seeing them get the attention that we think that they deserve. This was quite a request. And in some ways, we kind of understand it. Although she and James and John are likely coming from a prideful position, they at least believe that Jesus can answer their request. The problem is, as Jesus told them, you don't know what you're asking. You have no clue what you're getting yourself into. To drink the cup meant that you had to be willing to die in order to follow Jesus. To be a follower meant that you follow even if following leads up a hill and onto a cross. But look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James drank the cup, didn't he? In that way, the story kind of has a happy ending, if you can even call it that. Because obviously, James became a powerful servant. He became a man of God, full of faith, who it seems, started to understand what it meant to be a member of the kingdom, and it wasn't earthly status. He died for his faith. Tradition tells us that John didn't die in one, in one big moment of martyrdom, but rather that he lived a, a rather long life on earth, endure, enduring persecution and hardship for his faith, but he pressed on. And that's the way it is probably for most of, most of us, right? We may not die in one, in one sweeping moment of persecution to where we're martyred. 
No, ours might be a, a long obedience in the same direction. Persistence, persistently plodding and, and fighting and, and, and enduring heartache and heartbreak and brokenness, but we, we press on, right? Like Paul said, we press on toward the goal of the upward prize. There was a Roman coin that was once found, and on this coin was a picture of an ox. And this ox was facing two things. It was facing an altar and a plow. And the inscription on the coin read, ready for either. And that's really the way it is for us. That ox had to be ready for sacrifice on the altar or to be put into labor and pulling the plow. And the same is really true for us. We've got to be ready for either as a Christian. We've got to be ready to sacrifice our lives or to persistently plod in a faithful direction as we pull that plow, as we seek to do whatever it means to be a servant. To drink the cup, whether it be one massive suffering for righteousness where we are killed, that's not likely, but it may happen, some face that threat, whether it's that or whether it's a long obedience in the same direction, seeking to live for God every day, making right decisions and living right each and every day until we leave this earth and make it to heaven. And my guess is, when you get to heaven, you're not going to care one bit about where you sit. It's just my guess. But naturally, the rest of the apostles were upset at this request. Wouldn't you be? Naturally, they were upset because we see that this wasn't the only time the apostles talked about things like this. This wasn't the only time they discussed status. They were a competitive group, which is not a surprise because most people are competitive. And it's nothing unlike our society, right? We are a competitive society. This is a society that is based, it seems, on competition. And first place is the only place. Second place is the first loser, right? And we see it even among Christians. We see it even among churches, this competitiveness spills over into Christianity, and there's competition among leaders. There's competition among preachers. There's competition among song leaders. There's, there's, there's people who don't leave their ego in the car when they walk into a church building. Churches are full of prima donnas and divas. They're everywhere. And the challenge of any minister is to get people to understand that it's not about you. And that's tough because even the minister faces the threat and the temptation of making it about them, right? I don't have to tell you that churches are plentiful in the South. You know that. We don't just live in the Bible Belt here. We live on the buckle of the Bible Belt where churches are, are very plentiful, right? But what you see is even a competitiveness among churches of their own faith system, of their own denomination, right? I, I, I grew up in a town, my wife and I both, in a city that's closely connected to another city, and that city is a little bigger, and they have a huge church in this city, a mega church, if you will, thousands of people, and they have decided that they are going to plant a satellite campus in our hometown. The problem is they're supplying something where there is no demand. They're planting a church and drawing people away from their own denomination to come to that satellite church. And you have these other denominations around them, I mean, the, the other churches of their own denomination around them going, what are you doing? You're taking all our people. For what? There's a supply where there's no demand, right? So you, you breed this competitiveness even among your own people, your own faith, right? 
You can drive down Abilene. I drove down Treadway the other day. There are, in, within five city blocks, four churches of the same denomination. And how many churches of Christ are there in Abilene? 38, 39, I think, at last count. Now, we would like to believe that all of them are autonomous and that we don't try to recruit people away from other churches or steal sheep or anything like that. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And I think, sadly, too many times in our churches, we are seeking to grow the local kingdom rather than the kingdom of heaven. Because it's all about competition. And when it's all about competition, it's all about numbers, right? And we look at bodies in the pew rather than souls in the kingdom. And so however many people we can get shows that that's how successful we are. But you know as well as I do, it doesn't matter how big your church is that the devil runs it, right? So it's not just about bodies. It's not just about numbers. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. But what happens is this competitiveness leads to attraction, which leads to distraction, right? You see it all the time. Christians, churches resort to doing things that will attract and, and things that will draw a crowd. And whatever you have to use to win them is what you have to use to keep them, right? So you have to continually raise the bar and add more bells and whistles. And a church using the attraction method must continually do these things in order to keep people or else they lose. And the worst thing you can do in competition is lose, right? That's the worst thing you can do. And so you keep raising the bar so that you can continue to win because the focus then becomes about entertaining the masses. What if? What if instead of trying to impress our neighbors, we started loving our neighbors? What if we love God, love others, teach the word, and live out our convictions? What if we did that? What if we did that really, really well? What if we decided not to play? How about that? What if we decided we're not going to get involved in the game? We're not going to play the competitive game. We are going to be who Jesus would have us to be, and that's enough. What if we did that? We're going to be Christ-focused. We're going to be mission-minded. I mean, has the world ever seen a truly united church living out its convictions, loving God, loving each other, loving the community. I'm sure there's, there's many that have done that. But I think it's rather rare in our culture nowadays. The apostles were obviously a competitive bunch. Just back up to Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Who is the greatest? Can you envision this discussion going on among the apostles, maybe when Jesus wasn't around? And Peter is saying, well, obviously I'm the greatest. I'm the only one that got out of the boat. Yeah, I sank, but y'all didn't get out of the boat. Y'all sat there. I'm the only one that got out of the boat. I'm the one that makes the bold confessions. I'm the one that, 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 that's ready to die for Jesus. And then Matthew steps in and says, well, look, I gave up the most to be here. So obviously I'm the greatest. And James steps in and says, well, you know, Jesus and I are kin, so 
And then Judas says, well, you know, I keep the money, so obviously I'm very important. Can you imagine this discussion that went on among the apostles? They sought to answer the question, who is the greatest? And notice how Jesus answers them. He says, unless you are converted. Your version may say, unless you turn. Because Jesus says, unless you turn, you're not even going to see heaven. You're going in the wrong direction and you're thinking about wrong things. So unless you do something different, unless you aim in a different direction, you're not even going to have to worry about this heaven stuff. Quit being wrapped up in ambition or personal distinction. Quit craving personal glory or the pursuit of personal prestige. Jesus was witnessing the very sins that he would ultimately die for, right? He's seeing them fleshed out right in front of him. So he tells them, you've got to turn around and head in a different direction. Become like a child. That's it. Unless you turn and become like a child. What does that mean? That's not difficult for many churches. I know a lot of churches that are full of, of adults that act like children, right? What does it mean to, to become like a child? Well, children are totally and completely dependent on their parents, aren't they? They're trusting. Even if the parent doesn't know what they're doing, they, they trust their parents. Jesus is saying, you've got to become like a child. You've got to be totally and completely dependent upon me. Children are completely dependent on their parents to provide for them, to sustain them, to, to lead them in the proper direction. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be totally and completely dependent upon me. Because a child is humble. A child trusts. A child can't face life on his own. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's how you should be. You know, Jesus could have answered their question with me, couldn't he? He could have. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? I am. End of discussion, right? But Jesus doesn't answer that way. He could have. He could have just said me, end of discussion, exclamation point, period, we're done. But he doesn't. It would have been the best answer. It would have been the most profound because he was a trusting child who could do nothing on his, on his own. He said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. He was always about the Father's business. He was always about being an obedient son. And you can look around this church, and you can see a multitude of children, right? We have children running around everywhere, and that's a beautiful thing. Sometimes I like to just sit in the front pew and watch them play. Sometimes I get down and play with them. Some of them were up at the church the other day, and we went out and played on the playground because I love seeing the children running around and playing. We can learn something from our children sometimes, can't we? Just that sweet innocence, the dependence, the love that they show. They don't stay mad too long. They don't hold grudges, really. The other day, I was walking down the hall, and I noticed little Sky Thornton couldn't reach the water fountain. She really wanted to drink she couldn't reach it so along comes jet her brother and he gets down on all fours and lets her stand on his back so that she can reach the water fountain and i thought now there's something we could learn right our children can teach us something and i think that's what jesus was saying plus the fact that he would use children as an example was was profound as well because in this day and time children were meant to be seen and not heard they were more like property and so he's saying now no, that's not how you should look at your children. You should look at them to learn something because you could get something from them. In verses 26 through 28 of Matthew 20, Jesus gives the standard of greatness. In chapter 18, where we just read, he gave the character of a kingdom dweller. And now he gives the disciples and us the standard. If you want to be great, here's what you got to do. You got to aim low. 
But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the deal. Everyone serves a master. Everyone is a servant. Everyone. The question is, who do you serve? What do you serve? Because there's not a single person in this room or in this world who's not a servant. We all are. The question is, who do you serve? Some wives serve their husbands. Some husbands serve their wives. Some families serve their children. We, we serve different things. Some people serve their career. Some people serve a hobby. But we all serve something or someone. The question is, who will you serve? You're already a servant. But Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This isn't just about holding the door for someone or pumping their gas for them. This, it's about more than that. It's about sacrifice. It's about doing something for someone and serving someone else when there may be no reward at all attached to it, at least in this life. It's about serving those that may not even like you too much. This is about servanthood taken to the next level. You may get absolutely nothing out of it. It may drain you of your time and your energy, maybe even cost you some of your resources, but this is what kingdom people do. You know, in the restaurant business, there's a saying that the waiter or waitress is a server, not a servant. And that kind of reflects the, the idea that many in our culture hold, and that is servanthood or being a servant is the lowest of low responsibilities. And who would want to do that, right? Who would want to be a servant? And some, servanthood and slavery are tied closely together. And nobody wants to be a slave. No one wants to be a servant because that means somebody is telling you what to do. And nobody wants to be told what to do. But of course, in Jesus' kingdom, everything is upside down, right? Attitude affects altitude. And if you want, if you want to be raised up, you've got to be brought low. If you want to get to higher ground, you've got to descend first, right? You've got to aim low in life. You've got to have on this service, this service towel and this servant mentality. And Jesus says, who have you helped? That's really what it boils down to. Who have you helped? We want to claim status for ourselves or academic excellence or whatever it may be. We want to, we want to gain a lot of money and success in our culture means I get a lot of people to, to do what I want them to do. I assert my will and my authority. That's how you determine success. And Jesus says, no, success in the kingdom is about being brought low. It's about aiming low in life. And it's about being a servant. It's about girding up a towel and washing people's feet. Are you ready to do that? Are you willing to be a servant? You want to be great? Then don't play the game. Don't compete. Quit trying to win. Stop competing and start helping. Quit trying to be a master and be a servant instead, right? When I was in uh, junior high school, I was in the band. I played the tuba. Actually, I started by playing the trombone, and then they moved me to the baritone and then to the tuba. And all through junior high, I was second chair tuba out of two. So before you get to thinking I was some musical prodigy, I was horrible. But I liked band. I enjoyed it. All my friends were in band. I wanted to be with my friends. I enjoyed the teacher, so I stayed in it. Until ninth grade when they said, 
at my school anyway, they said you have to pick in ninth grade between band or athletics. Well, I wasn't much better in athletics, but I knew that was, I, I had far more ability in that than I did band, so I quit band. My daughter, oldest daughter, did band all the way through school. She was much more accomplished at it than I was. She was, she was very good. And just watching her, watching our kids from church here that have been in band, some that have been drum majors, I've noticed that, you know, there's this dynamic, especially in the marching band, where you have the drum major who stands up there with a, a different type of uniform. They're out in front. Maybe they're on a big stand. If it's a parade, they're out in front leading the parade. Sometimes they have a baton, and, and it's a very glamorous position, right? You're leading the band, especially if it's a big band. Can you imagine all the glamour associated with that? And then you get to talking to people who are drum majors, and you understand, not all that glamorous sometimes. It's hard work. It's difficult getting all those moving parts going in the right direction. You know, the band director relies on the drum major. The drum major relies on the band director because can you imagine having, you know, 250, 300 kids out there trying to play and move in certain directions without knocking each other over? I can't imagine what that would be like. When I look at what is written here in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, I see something very similar. What I see here is the disciples, the apostles, all wanted to be the drum major. They saw that job as glamorous. So much so that they wanted to be the leader of the band. But the band director steps in and helps them to understand that it's not all that glamorous. That you've got to drink the cup. That, you know, you've got to be willing to die. So what you see as a place of honor comes a lot of responsibility persecution, even death. Here's what I think. I think our Lord is looking for band members that, that don't mind playing a subservient role. I think he's looking for people who don't aspire to always be the drum major, but are just ready to play whatever instrument he has called them to play. You know what the hardest instrument to play is? Second fiddle. The hardest instrument to play is second fiddle. Everybody wants to be the drum major. Everybody wants to be the first chair. And Jesus says, look, you don't get it. There is no harmony. There is no unity unless I have people who are willing to be second chair. It's not about a competition. It's not about who's better than anyone else. It's about being a servant. Are you willing to play second fiddle? Because that's what I need. So I'd ask you that same question. Are you willing to cease striving for positions of honor, to stop competing, and be a servant? What a wonderful testament that can be to the world around us, to see people united in the cause of Christ seeking to serve. What an impact that can make. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth, to be gathered together as your people. And God, we pray that we find our honor in you that we allow you to do the exalting, 
and that we seek places where we can serve and not be a master, where we can be a leader through servants, through, through being a servant. And may we show you, Lord, and everybody around us how much we love God, how much we love Christ, how much we love the kingdom by being servants. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for always providing for us and sustaining us, and may we always be like little children and depend on you and be about our Father's business. It's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to close this morning with an invitation. If you'd like uh, the prayers or support of this church family, if you are seeking to know more about our church family, if you'd like to know more about what it means to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church, then certainly we'd love to study with you. Maybe you've been studying and you're ready to put on Christ this morning in baptism. We'd love to do that as well. Uh, whatever your need is, we are glad you're here. And if we can help you, Don's going to lead us in a song. Come as we stand and as we sing.